John 11:45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Don't you want to know just a little bit more? I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Surely you've got some questions. What does he think about what Jesus just did? What did his skeptical neighbors and friends say to him when they found him alive? And John doesn't answer any of those questions. As one teacher puts it, everything is sacrificed to the sign itself, to what it anticipates. In John's gospel, the emphasis of all Jesus' miraculous works has been less on the sign and most on the thing signified. What Jesus does is explained only insofar as it helps us understand what Jesus means for the world. Even a miracle as incredible as the raising of Lazarus finds its greatest purpose not in what it accomplishes, but in what it points to, the work of God in Christ. And so, this morning's text, the passage immediately following, focuses not on answering the questions that appease our curiosity, but on describing the effects of Jesus' great work as part of the Father's plan to save his people from their sins. The first of these effects is easy to see and understand. Verse 45, many of the Jews had seen what he did and believed in him. As before, John doesn't mean that all who believed in this way came to saving faith. John has highlighted false faith rampant throughout Jesus' ministry among many who followed him. Some, even from an event like this, surely came to believe in the power of the sign without believing in the power and divinity of the one who performed it. Even so, it's no great speculation to also believe that God used Lazarus' resurrection to call some of his own to himself. Some of these Jews, seeing Lazarus emerge from the tomb, were surely given saving faith. And the Greek word translated here, seen, means a bit more than that in English. 
It suggests looking closely as to study and really observe something to consider what happened and what it might mean. I've always been struck by a paragraph at the end of Proverbs 24. You all hear me reference it a lot. David says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, behold, it was overgrown with thorns. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What strikes me about that passage is not so much the lesson on laziness. I do my best to ignore the Bible's encouragements to diligence. What strikes me is that David, taking his daily constitutional, a walk outside the grounds, sees an overgrown field and actually stops to consider what it means. He stops to think to study it, to take in what he's seeing and what it says about reality. That's what some of these Jews did. They didn't simply see that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They stopped to think about what it must mean. They understood the miracle as a sign and carefully considered what must be signified. So much unbelief comes from an unwillingness to really consider the events of life and history and what they must mean. And yes, there is much hardship and challenge in this life. I don't have to tell you all that. You've experienced it, and we talk about it often. And here, Lazarus was dead. These Jews came to mourn and to grieve with a family who had lost a loved one. And instead, they receive resurrection joy. There is much hardship. But if we stop to consider all that is happening, if we observe reality thoughtfully, we will also find many occasions for joy and thanksgiving, even in the midst of great trial. But this was not the only effect of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, some came to believe in him. You'd think that anyone who saw this miracle would believe in Jesus. But that's not how it works. Others responded differently. As one of the reformers put it, there is no work of God which unbelief will not infect and corrupt by the bitterness of its poison. Bitterness is the right word for Jesus' enemies. They are also carefully considering, but not Jesus' sign, nor the meaning. They're considering, they're observing what's happening to those who are following Jesus, not as it relates to their souls, but as it relates to their own power, comfort, and control. That's what they're keyed in on. Some of the people in the crowds are being converted to faith in Christ, and as Israel's religious leaders, that really sticks in their craw. Why should Jesus get this attention? Why should Jesus be considered so important? Does he think he matters as much as Moses or as much as those who sit in Moses' seat? He's not one of the religious rulers. He's not of the appropriate social or political class. 
But another effect they're observing is among the people, and it's equally troubling, it's this heightening messianic fervor. It's some of those people who come to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus has done. The people who are watching Jesus' miracles and not considering what it means for their own souls and for their own salvation and for the plan of God, but they think surely a man who can do such things must be our Messiah. And we at first imagine this to be a good thing. Careful observers telling the religious class that they've got Jesus all wrong, that he is the one who has come to save the people from their sins. But that's not what this conversation is. The people aren't living observant lives. They aren't watching or listening closely to Jesus. They're just hearing from him what they want to hear. And for them, the Messiah's primary role is to free them from political oppression, from physical captivity. In this case, to free them from Rome. They're ready to march. They're ready to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. And in Jesus, they found their man. The people go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were much more accessible to the common people. They were much more well-known by the people in the communities. The Pharisees were the local scribes and the teachers, the leaders at the synagogues. And so the people come to them and say, we found him. The Pharisees have no power on their own to do anything about Jesus. The Sanhedrin was the political council that Rome had empowered to handle Israel's internal affairs. And that group included many of these Pharisees, also some barely theological aristocrats, but that group was mostly comprised of the Sadducees, the priests and the chief priests of Israel. And when something needed to happen in Israel, this was the council that needed to be convened. And so it was. After all, there's a crisis brewing. Verse 47, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They've considered the situation. They identified a crisis. But it's not that they're leading people spiritually astray through false religion. It's not that they're rejecting God's self-revelation and the Savior he sent to free his people from their sins. The crisis is that if these overzealous people have their way, the Jews and the Roman government will soon be in direct conflict. And the members of the Sanhedrin have no doubt who will win. The frenzied crowds aren't worried about who will win. When you believe that God sent his Messiah to free you from Roman oppression, you trust him to give you the victory. And they're not wrong about how it would work. They're very wrong about what God is doing in Christ. They're not listening to what God is saying about himself. They think they know better. The word order of verse 48 is awkward. It's really awkward in the Greek. And John does this to highlight what is for the Sanhedrin the most important issue, their own power. A crackdown by the Romans on the people of Israel would be unfortunate and unpleasant, but the real disaster would be if the members of the Sanhedrin were to lose their comfort, their power, and their control. This is why Caiaphas is so annoyed by the failure of anyone to put forward a plan. Valerius Gratus, the Roman prefect, had made Caiaphas the high priest a decade earlier Matthew, like John, also implicates him in the plot to murder Jesus. One historian tells us that Caiaphas was a rude and snot-sly manipulator, 
an opportunist who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice and who was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook. How would you like that on your tombstone? (laughs) And his address here to the council matches that. It is incredibly rude. He says, you don't know anything. He treats them as fools. And his frustration stems from the group's apparent refusal to admit out loud what he knows has to be done. They're doing all this grumbling about what might happen, and Caiaphas knows what has to be done, and no one will say it. And so Caiaphas says it. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Or as Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber succinctly captured it, this Jesus must die. Caiaphas, of course, is not recommending this path for his own self-interest. It's for them. It's better for you, he says. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing Good and evil. Children, Satan is the father of lies. John already told us in this gospel that these religious rulers are of their father, the devil. They lie because they believe and repeat Satan's lies. And sometimes lies can make us sound very good to others. As here with Caiaphas, it's not for me, it's for you. Sometimes lies can seem like the right thing to say. I know it doesn't seem right, but it's best. The ends will justify the means. But Satan's lies are just that. They're lies. Everything he ever tells you will be a lie. There is no such thing as just this once, and Satan knows it. There is no small sin, and he knows it. It's a lie to say that our sin is okay because other people sin even worse. Satan knows it, but what he speaks are lies. And on the other side of the coin, Satan knows that God's forgiveness knows no limits, but he'll tell you God can't forgive you. He'll tell you that God will never forget, cannot forgive, and does not love you. Satan's lies are just that, they're lies. No matter how right they sound in the moment, if they come from the father of lies, they are lies. Caiaphas isn't thinking of himself when he says Jesus must die. He's not thinking about his own power or his position or the favor that he has with the Roman government. No, he's thinking of these men on the council. He's thinking of the people. He's thinking of the nation. Won't someone think of the children? Yet, as another teacher points out, it's here that John's irony reaches its pinnacle. That is, on the level that Caiaphas means his words, he is speaking Satan's lies. But with the exact same words, there is another level of meaning here, one that belongs to God and one that is gloriously true. Caiaphas says that Jesus must die so that the nation of Israel might live. He's thinking only in political terms, and so he's wrong. Jesus will die, and so will the nation of Israel. But God, 
through Caiaphas says that Jesus must die to save the true sheep of Israel. That's why verse 51 says he did not say this of his own accord. God uses Caiaphas' sacrificial language to speak truth. Caiaphas is right. Jesus will be devoted to death. He will be the scapegoat upon which the death that others deserve is executed. But not for political ends, but spiritual ones. All throughout these chapters, John has been separating Israel into two camps, false and true. And true Israel, as Jesus and John say again and again, true Israel will be gathered by Jesus with the other sheep he has who are not of this fold, the Gentile believers. And it is for these sheep, all the scattered children of God, all the ones given to the Son by the Father, it is for these that Jesus will die. It says here he dies to gather them into his one flock. He dies to make them his own. John and Caiaphas both understand that if Jesus dies, it will be as a substitution for others. That's why what Caiaphas says can be both his words, freely chosen lies from the evil one, and God's words, glorious truth. But Caiaphas did not stop to consider what the signs really signified. What are you focused on? Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, even these zealous Jews who want Jesus as their political Messiah. We'll talk about others later who don't live a considered life at all, but these people are considering what's happening around them, and yet they all miss the real meaning of Jesus' life and death. And it's because they're so focused on their own desires, they don't stop to consider all of life through the lens of God's desires. You can tell if you look at their calendars how they spend their time. If you look at their checkbooks, how they spend their resources. And if you look at their passions, what they love to talk about, what they're passionate about, what they truly love, When you look at those things, you see what people are focused on. And for these groups, it's their own power and comfort and control. And when we are focused on those things, we will always miss the Savior. Some still today never consider Jesus or any important questions of reality at all. But many others consider him. But consider him through the lens of how he can or cannot serve their purposes. Jesus is right. I'm sorry, of course Jesus is right. Caiaphas is right. Jesus must die. And Caiaphas will help put him to death, which is God's will. So do you see that there are many things that can be done according to God's will by people who do them replacing God's purposes with their own. The right things can happen, and some people can participate in them for the wrong purposes. They can totally miss the point. The decision is made. Jesus will be arrested and put to death. There will be a trial, at least the appearance of one. It's unnecessary. The council has already found them guilty of what is in their mind, the crime most worthy of death. 
threatening their power, their comfort, and their control. And by the way, they aren't wrong. Jesus is a threat to our power, comfort, and control. He is the greatest threat to our power, comfort, and control. That's why many still today reject him. Even churchgoers trying to keep his lordship at arm's length because he interferes in every aspect of our lives. But just as Caiaphas' words intertwine his free will with God's sovereignty, so does providence. Verses like 54, they will arrest and crucify Jesus. But they will only do this in God's perfect timing and for God's purposes, not a moment before. For now, Jesus will withdraw to the countryside. He will go toward the wilderness as he awaits the hour that his father has appointed. This begins in John, in a literary sense, Jesus' march toward death. No longer in John's gospel will Jesus minister openly. The resurrection of Lazarus was both the pinnacle and the culmination of Jesus' public ministry. Everything that follows will be less, less public, less dramatic, less controversial until the cross. The chapter ends with a brief glimpse into the thoughts and conversations of others in the Jewish crowds. They're gathering for Passover in Jerusalem. The tradition was to come early to complete the ritual purification. And by the tone of their conversation, speculations on whether or not Jesus will show up and attend the Passover events, I think you see the kind of life that these people are living is an unconsidered one. They don't seem hostile to Christ. They also don't seem to have considered the signs of his ministry very carefully. One pastor says there's no evidence of thoughtful discipleship, only considerable enthusiasm. I chuckled at that because I picture these people as the 24-hour news watchers of the first century. They're in the know about the day's happenings. They have strong opinions. They're all worked up about the issues and what's going on but they don't consider what anything really means. They're trained to handle important issues in unimportant ways, sound bites, hot takes. They're, they're trained to fool themselves into thinking that knowing is considering, when really they're just sound and fury signifying nothing. It's their suspense, it's their curiosity that has them eager for the Passover. Not its meaning, even apart from Christ, or certainly now its meaning given what Christ has just done in his ministry. But you know, they're going to do all of the things of the Passover? They're going to do all the things. All the things that are according to God's Will, the washings and the feasts and the rituals, they're going to do all the things having replaced all of God's purposes for those things with their own purposes. There's such a good warning for us in this. Worship, tithing, the Lord's Supper, all the means of grace, Obedience to the law, even. 
These are the will of God for us. They're good things to do. But if we are not constantly considering what they mean, why we do them, where we do them inconsistently, and by whose power we do them at all, we're just as much at risk of doing all the right things, replacing his purposes for them with our own. You can be really enthusiastic in the practice of religion, without being a thoughtful disciple of Christ. You can be a really notable, pragmatic do-gooder, putting on a display of righteousness that knocks people's socks off, without ever being a conscientious and considerate follower of Jesus. Jesus gave and gives all for his sheep. He died that we might live. He gives his spirit and his power that we might live abundantly through him. And yet so many in this passage focused on their own agendas miss his. They're too afraid. They're too afraid of what Jesus will cost them in terms of power and comfort and control. And I wonder what about me? What about you? How carefully are we considering what Jesus means for the ways that we live? I don't often close with a quotation, but this one from the Genevan pastor, John Calvin, organizes some really good ideas for us to consider as we move through the rest of this Lord's day. He says, the only way to deliberate in a proper and holy manner, is this. First, we ought to inquire what is the will of God. Next, we ought to do it. We must not be discouraged, he says, by any fear, though we be besieged by a thousand deaths. Our actions must not be moved by any gust of wind, but constantly regulated by what is the will of God. And he closes, he who boldly despises dangers, or at least rising above the fear of them, obeys God anyway. He will at length have a prosperous result. Because contrary to the expectation of all, God blesses that firmness which is found on obedience to his word.